0: Josh Gibson was an icon for African-Americans during a time when segregation laws limited opportunities in baseball. He is an inspiration for us all today as a man who pursued his passions and dedicated himself wholly to what brought him joy. It's no wonder why he's considered one of the greatest baseball players to ever live. In this episode, we honor the life and career of Josh Gibson and explore what he means to baseball both then and now. Today, on Rounders, A History of Baseball in America. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Rounders. I am your host, Jeff Lambert. Thanks for tuning in today. February, we are honoring all of our episodes to line up with Black History Month, and we really want to highlight some of the major movers and shakers that helped not only popularize baseball in the United States, but also helped to break down those barriers that eventually brought baseball together under one flag of anybody being able to participate regardless of cultural background or race. So I'm excited to jump in today to someone who I've had on my list for a long time to do an episode on, and that is Josh Gibson. If you're unfamiliar with Josh, he is someone that uh, really deserves a deep dive. And I had a great time uh, looking at different articles and historical pieces written by baseball historians about Josh's life. And certainly I could go into just his baseball career, but I also wanted to highlight just the impact that he left on the sport too. So I hope you enjoyed this episode. Uh, It was certainly fun to research and I hope it gives you a greater perspective on what Josh meant to baseball and what he still means to baseball. Let's get into it. Before we jump into the details of Josh Gibson's life, let's take a step back and just look at an overview of who this individual was. So Josh Gibson was an African-American professional baseball player. He played primarily as a catcher during the 1920s, 30s, and 40s. And he's widely regarded as one of the greatest power hitters in the history of baseball. And he's frequently compared to Babe Ruth and other legendary players of his time. Now, throughout his career, Gibson was really a dominant force, both behind the plate and at the plate. And he has numerous accomplishments that really earn him a place among the all-time greats of the sport. So now that we've gone into a bit of an overview, high-level overview of Josh Gibson, let's look at what we know about his career. Now, Josh Gibson's career is certainly memorable based on the information that we do have, but there are gaps. And if we had all that information, it would be downright legendary, his accomplishments. But with Josh, because he did not play in the American League or National League, and because he ended up playing in several leagues that didn't keep a meticulous track of a lot of the stats, there are gaps in his record that we have to rely on anecdotal evidence to be able to help us piece some of this together. But just to give you an overview, I guess, of his career from historian standpoints, even with these gaps, for instance, Lawrence Hogan, who wrote an excellent article on him for the Society of American Baseball Research. He summarized Josh's career by saying, quote, there exists no official source of statistics, no compilations of scorecards, and many gaps exist in the historical record. End quote. You also had Sabre historian Bill Johnson state about Joss's career that, quote, the record keeping was incomplete and non-standardized. So the actual total is unclear and probably unknowable. That reality that statistics cannot be usefully compared between the Negro leagues and pre-integration major leagues. And it's unfortunate yet also largely irrelevant because Josh Gibson was by so many accounts as to make the claim indisputable, one of the greatest sluggers who ever stepped into the batter's box End quote Without a doubt, though, we know from existing statistics and first-person accounts that Josh Gibson was an incredible player and an unrivaled power hitter. So let's take a closer look at his career through the available information that we have. Let's start off by giving you a bit of a background into how Josh got into baseball. So he was born in 1911 in Buena Vista, Georgia, and he grew up playing baseball in sandlots and played community games. And his parents moved to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, up north, when he was in the fifth grade. And at age 15, like a lot of kids during this time, he ended up dropping out of school and he took a job at an airbrake manufacturing plant to help support the family. Now, even at 15 years old, Josh was an imposing figure. He was already six foot one and 200 pounds by 15 years old. And that job that he got at the air brake manufacturing plant, that opened the door to a position at a steel company. That was nearby and they gave him set work hours, which allowed him to have his evenings free for the first time. And he used that extra time to be able to get involved in sports, particularly two sports. He really enjoyed swimming. And the other one, as you probably have guessed, was baseball. So he really jumped in and developed a passion for both of these using that newfound spare time that he had by getting this job that had set hours. So by age 16, he was playing in a lot of these local games just at the Sandlot community get-togethers, and he was noticed by a local department store that sponsored an all-African-American squad. So he was invited to join the team at 16 with a bunch of adults, this squad that was sponsored by this local department store. So, Josh, at 16 onward, continued playing in city business leagues, and his play really was noticed by other individuals who were involved in semi pro leagues. So, the manager of the Pittsburgh Crawfords, which was another business uh, sponsored by a nearby company who was an all African American squad, took notice. Uh, The manager, whose name was Harold Hooks Tinker, was randomly at a game that Josh was playing in. He went to support two of his current players who were on the team who were just playing pickup against Josh's team in the off season. And Tinker watched Josh play. And this is what he had to say about him upon this first observation. He said, quote, I had two of my Crawford players on that all-star team. Otherwise I wouldn't have been there. And that's when I saw Josh. He was playing third base and he was very mature in his actions. You wouldn't think that he was sixteen years old. He was built like sheet metal. If you ran into him, it was like you ran into a wall. I signed him. I brought Josh Gibson into the semi-pro picture, end quote. So there you have it. Keep in mind, Josh is 16 years old. He's playing for a local department store team, and he gets invited to play for the Pittsburgh Crawfords, who were a semi-pro team sponsored by another local business, but it was a step up on the professional ladder. They were one of the top semi-pro teams in the Pittsburgh region, actually. So at 16 years old, Josh gets his first contract to play in a semi-pro ball club. Pretty impressive. So from that point on, we do have some records that we can piece together in terms of what he was able to build for a career as a professional ball player. So we know that Josh played for the Crawfords for the next few seasons from age 16 on. And then he went over and he signed on with another Negro League club called the Homestead Braves, uh, the Homestead Grays, excuse me. And they were one of the top teams in the Negro Leagues. And he would go back to play for the Crawfords, and then he would go back to the the grays. And there was a cycle like that for a few years. And he would also go in the winters down to Mexico and Cuba, like a lot of his uh, fellow teammates to make a little extra money and play where he was welcome. So he would join teammates like Martin Diego, who we did an episode on. I'll include a link in the show notes. Cool Papa Bell played with him quite a bit during the winters. So he traveled a lot and baseball obviously was very important to him. Now, keep in mind, the reason that he was uh, relegated to playing in these leagues, either outside the country or in the Negro Leagues, was because segregation policies were still being enforced by the American and National Leagues. So unfortunately, Josh never got the chance to don a uniform and play with his contemporaries like Babe Ruth or Lou Gehrig or Dizzy Dean. So statistically, during these years where he was with the Crawfords and the Grays, who did keep written records, even though there's gaps, Josh compiled a career batting average of 374 with 165 home runs, 730 RBIs, and he had a win above replacement rating of 38.4. 38.4. That it was not a misspeak on my part. He also made nine all-star appearances in the leagues that he played for. And keep in mind, too, he compiled those numbers for clubs that Typically played only 27 to 68 games a season. These were not seasons that were as long as we would see other professional clubs play, yet he was able to compile those numbers. So you think about that in terms of that plus the gaps in record keeping, and we still know that this is what he was able to produce. But the real value of examining Josh's career is not in the stats because we have limited information. The real value, I think, is through looking through the eyes of others who watched him play to really embrace his greatness. So let's take some time today to be able to follow Josh's career through human accounts. So while this information, you know, it's anecdotal in nature, right? But we can look at it and it can provide useful insights into the abilities that statistics we just can't pin for Josh. So let's look what his peers had to say about his play and ultimately the legacy that he had as one of baseball's greats. Let's start off by looking at Josh's celebrity. How well known was he for people that uh, watched baseball during this time? How did his uh, teammates feel about him in terms of being one of the top players and leaders of the clubs he played for? And we know that his talent was really widely respected by fans and teammates, and they would show up to watch him play. He drew crowds. Historian Bill Johnson stated that, quote, Gibson played for the semi-pro Crawford Colored Giants in 1929 and 1930, and he only earned a few dollars a game while often playing in front of 5,000 or more spectators, end quote. Josh's longtime teammate, Monty Irvin, also once stated that, quote, in a hotel, in a restaurant, or at a bar, everybody wanted to meet Josh Gibson, end quote. Monty Irvin also stated that Josh could, quote, handle the attention that came with his celebrity status. Josh never got a swelled head. He had that kind of quiet confidence. Naturally, the ladies were all crazy about him because he looked so boyish, end quote. So we see Josh uh, in terms of how other players felt about him in terms of how the fans showed up to see him. He was a big ticket, especially for someone that didn't play on one of the American league or national league teams. Now let's dive a little bit deeper into Josh Gibson's plate ability. What was his prowess as a power hitter? Because he's certainly known for his talent at the plate and we do have stats, but again, there's gaps so we can rely on some accounts from the time period to help us fill in some of these gaps. So, For instance, in 1967, there was a story from the Sporting News that credited Josh with the drive in a Negro League game that hit just two feet from the top of the wall circling the bleachers at Yankee Stadium, where he was playing an exhibition game. That's approximately 580 feet from home plate in the original Yankee Stadium. Had the ball just been two feet higher, the article said, it might have carried to 700 feet. So that certainly gives us uh, some insight into just how much power Josh had behind being able to hit the ball. We also have a quote from Josh's teammate Sam Jethro. He watched him for several seasons as a hitter, and he stated that quote: "If someone had told me that Josh hit the ball a mile, I would have believed them." End quote. Satchel Page. The great Satchel Paige, who was also a teammate with Josh Gibson for multiple seasons, said this about Josh's hitting ability. He said, quote, you look for his weakness, and while you're looking for it, he's liable to hit 45 home runs, end quote. And the quotes just keep going, folks. Negro League pitcher and future manager Alonzo Boone, he said that, quote, Josh was a better power hitter than Babe Ruth, Ted Williams, or anybody else I've ever seen. Anything he touched was hit hard. He could power outside pitches to right field. Short stops would move to left field when Josh came to the plate, end quote. And then finally, we have Josh's teammate who played in the winters with him, fellow Hall of Famer Cool Papa Bell. And this is what he had to say about Josh as a power hitter. He said, quote, he was a hitter, one of the greatest you ever saw, the most powerful, never swung hard at the ball either, just a short swing. He never swung all the way around. He just hit them straight. Line drives, but they kept going, end quote. So we combine these quotes with the stats that we do have, and it certainly points to the fact that Josh wowed people that watched him and his ability at the plate. Let's look at Josh Gibson's defensive capabilities. Uh, We know that Hall of Famer Roy Campanella once stated after watching Josh that, quote, he was not only the greatest catcher, but the greatest baseball player I ever saw, end quote. The Pittsburgh Courier uh, newspaper of the time uh, had an article about him by writer Wendell Smith, and he interviewed Hall of Famer Dizzy Dean in 1937, and in that article, he asked his opinion about some of these prominent Negro League stars that he had gotten to see over the years. And when he was asked about Josh Gibson, Dizzy Dean said, quote, Gibson is one of the best catchers that ever caught a ball. Watch him work this pitcher. He's top at that. And boy oh boy, can he hit the ball, end quote. We have historian Jack Montgomery, and he stated that, quote, throughout his career, Gibson was known for his power hitting, but he was also an excellent defensive catcher. He had a powerful arm and he was known for his quick reactions and excellent blocking skills. Despite the limited resources available to players in the Negro Leagues, Gibson was a master of the finer points of the game and was regarded as one of the most complete players of his era, end quote. So we've gone through Josh's celebrity, how well people knew him and wanted to see him play. We went through his ability at the plate. We looked at Josh's defensive ability. But let's talk about his all-around contributions to the game. What other people thought about his legacy as one of the greats. So we have several accounts that points to the fact that watching Josh Gibson was like watching history in the making. So in terms of his overall ability, Monty Irvin, who we quoted earlier, was uh, interviewed and stated about Josh that, quote, I played with Willie Mays and against Hank Aaron. They were tremendous players, but they were no Josh Gibson, end quote. Hall of Fame pitcher Walter Johnson had this to say about Josh. Quote, there is a catcher that any big league club would like to buy for $200,000. His name is Gibson. He can do everything. He hits the ball a mile, he catches so easy, he might as well be in a rocking chair. He throws like a rifle. Too bad that Gibson is a colored fellow. End quote. Without a doubt, those who saw Josh play held him in the highest regard, and it's not hard to see why. Whether it was hitting, fielding, or overall presence in the field, Josh Gibson certainly left a lasting impression that missing statistics just do not account for. Now, what happened to Josh in terms of his career, you know, as he aged, we talked about there's gaps in terms of the statistical record, but we have some anecdotal evidence. We also have to factor into account that Josh didn't have a very long playing career. In 1943, while he was playing for the Homestead Greys, Josh was at home. It was an off day and he suffered a seizure and he lost consciousness and he was rushed to a nearby hospital. And there he was diagnosed with a brain tumor. He was only 32 years old when this happened. So the newspaper speculated that he had suffered a nervous breakdown, and Josh never took the time to correct them on that. He kept his diagnosis private, but he ended up returning to the field, and he kept playing, and he had one of the best seasons of his career in 1943, even after getting that devastating news. And remember, medical treatments were certainly limited during this time for a brain tumor, so the outlook was not good. There certainly wasn't any recourse for him to be able to get past this. So, unfortunately, the brain tumor uh, continued to accelerate. And by 1945, just two seasons later, teammates and fans were noticing that there were changes in Josh's behavior, that he was becoming increasingly erratic, that he was gaining weight. And it was really evident that the brain tumor was affecting his production. So, 1945, it really started to show up in his stats. And just two years later, Two, you know, less than two years later. Excuse me, Josh ended up collapsing at his home in Pittsburgh, and he died from that tumor. And he was just thirty-six years old when he passed. And you think about the longevity of some players, and you have to wonder: he could have kept playing with the the way that his production was coming together in his early thirties. And if you attacked another ten years on his career, where would we stand? You know, it's something to to really consider. It was a sad and short uh, ending for Josh to leave us that early. And in 1972, he was posthumously elected into the Baseball Hall of Fame. His plaque credits him with almost 800 home runs across a 17-year career. But again, remember, we can look at the accounts of his peers, and we know that his legacy is far greater than what mere numbers can account for. So although Josh Gibson's career was tragically cut short, at just 36 years old, he did leave an everlasting impression on all those fortunate enough to watch him play. And he truly was one of the greatest players of his era, certainly one of the greatest of all time. And he deserves his name next to the game's greats, the ones that we list today off the top of our head. Josh should be in that conversation. I'm going to leave you with a quote by Josh himself that really shows how he approached life and The passion that he had for baseball. And I think it can really give us a reminder of how we should approach the things that we care about in life. He said, quote, man, when I come to the plate, I'm in scoring position, end quote. It was really a testament to that gift that he was living life to the fullest, finding joy and purpose in the things that he loves. And that's an additional legacy that Josh leaves for all of us, whether they enjoy baseball or not. So, folks, thanks again for joining me for this episode. Just a reminder, if you're enjoying what's happening here, you'd like to get more baseball in your life, you can sign up for our free weekly email newsletter. We have a bonus podcast that you get access to just by signing up. It's called This Week in Baseball History, where we go over the top events that happened you know, every past week. Uh, very short and very, uh, I think, educational. So you can access that by just signing up for the newsletter. You get additional information about every episode, photos and videos that you may not see. So I would encourage you to go ahead and do that. And just overall, thanks for your listenership and joining me for another episode. So as we always end, each show, I leave you with those immortal words. There are only two seasons, winter and baseball. See you next time. Rounders, A History of Baseball in America is produced by Jeffrey Lambert. Our research assistant is Cass Silber. A special thanks to our starting nine supporters, Nathan Halverson and Jack Wilson.